Isaiah chapter 62. Isaiah chapter 62. The title tonight is Jesus and the New Jerusalem. Jesus and the New Jerusalem. Chapter 62 is about, again, Isaiah continues to speak on the Messiah, the the servant of God. And he's going to talk about the New Jerusalem that is still yet future and the Messiah that will be recognized by the nation of Israel that's still yet future. And the people will will receive a new nature, a new character. They'll receive new names. And everything's going to be new. And again, this is still yet future. And this is what Isaiah is going to be speaking about here in in chapter 62. Chapter 62 continues with the speech of the Messiah that was started in chapter 61. And it shows us the passionate enthusiasm of his concern, that is the Messiah's concern for Jerusalem. And the chapter has to do with developing a holy people, a holy race of people with a new name, a new nature, and it promises God's people a wonderful transformation. And it calls for persistent intercessors. And it promises to preserve the fruits of its labor, the hard work that it's done. And it proclaims that those citizens marching on Jerusalem's highway, it, it, it proclaims a great salvation that makes the city of God with its sanctified population full of blessing and attraction. People will recognize the city of Jerusalem, the new city. The Messiah's desire for these still future joys is laid out for us in this chapter. And there should be a desire in the hearts of all believers for these yet future joys as well. Now, there's a danger today. And, you know, we could probably maybe all agree at one point, maybe something that was taking place in our life at at a certain time. Uh, But there's a danger of, of... today of believers looking forward to the coming of Christ to take us out of this world so that we can get away from our problems rather than say Lord I want to get out of here I want to go to be with you because I love you because of the salvation you've given because of the new life you've given me not just as a way of escape because sometimes we use it as a way of escape It's not the best motive for wanting to be with Jesus. Like the psalmist said in Psalm 84 too, my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. That should be our heart's desire. I want to be with the living God. My flesh and my heart cry out to be with him because of who he is. Not so that I can escape from my world or my problems or whatever messy things going on in my life. And people a lot of times get themselves into messy situations, real messy situations. And then they want the Lord to quickly come and just bail them out. On the one hand, when things are going well, we want the Lord to come back. When they're not going well, we want him to come back. And then when things are going well, we want him, oh, take your time, Lord. You know, I'm having a good time right now and things uh, things seem to be going pretty well. So let's begin in uh, chapter 62 with verse 1. And Isaiah says, For Zion's sake I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. Isaiah says, I will speak out to encourage Jerusalem. 
I won't be quiet until she's saved and her victory shines like a burning torch in the night. Now the personal pronoun here in verse 1, we see in verse 6 that it suggests it's the Lord who's speaking. God promises to keep speaking. And he promises to keep working until his purposes for Jerusalem are worked out, are complete. This isn't just for Jerusalem's good, but it's also for the good of the nations of the world. There won't be any righteousness nor peace on this earth until Jerusalem gets her new name and the Messiah dwells there. The reason Jerusalem can't have peace today is because her Messiah isn't there. Because the Messiah is sitting at the right hand of the Father right now, longing to rule that city in righteousness. It's called the Holy Land. And you can call Jerusalem the Holy City. But it's far from holy today. It's far from holy the way that it is right now. But one day it will be holy. And it will be Jehovah God who makes it holy. Man will not make the kingdom holy. No leader or organization can do that. Only Jesus Christ can bring real and lasting peace into the world. And only the enthusiasm of the Lord will accomplish it. Isaiah's heart, as well as the heart of every godly person on earth, joins in this longing. They enter into this longing. All of creation and all all believers are groaning in their present condition as they think about the future. You know, are you tired of this earthly journey? Do you want that fellowship of the Father and His house? Like David who said, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. That's something that every believer should, should, should think about. The psalmist said in Psalm 27, For one thing I have desired of the Lord... That will I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Verse 2. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness. Speaking of Jerusalem's righteousness. And all kings will see your glory. You shall be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord will name. Jerusalem. The nations are going to see you victorious one day. And all of their kings are going to see your glory. And you're going to be called by a new name that's given to you by the Lord himself. The repeated word righteousness here in verse 1 shows that that what God and Isaiah said is connected. A new heart, a new situation, a new earth, a new righteousness calls for a new name. To go along with the transformed nature which means a new status. Now, I don't know what the new me is going to be like. But one thing I do know for sure, it'll be way better than it is right now. And I will be glad that the old me is gone for good. Because it still wants to raise its ugly head. It still wants its way. It still wants to be pampered and catered. We will be new. And we will be in the new Jerusalem. What a great picture we have here that's given to us here of the future. Redemption does not involve just the church, but the nation of Israel and this earth. Like Paul said, now we're all groaning and and we're also persevering. We're hanging, we're waiting for that fantastic day when we will be delivered. Verse 3. 
You shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Jerusalem's going to be like a, a beautiful crown for the Lord. The promise here is that the Lord will hold you in his hand for all to see like a beautiful crown of glory for the Lord. Israel is going to have a new position. Uh, The crown here suggests something that's definitely royal. But a diadem implies a tiara like the mitre of the high priest. Verse 4. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, or you'll no longer be called forsaken. Nor shall your land anymore be termed or called desolate, but you shall be called Hephzibah, and your land Beulah, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. Now, Israel has been forsaken like an unfaithful wife. The Lord abandoned her. He didn't divorce her. And this is the picture and the name of Israel since the crucifixion of Christ. And in the coming kingdom, Israel's trials will all be forgotten when she gets her new name, Hephzibah, which means my delight is in her. She will be delightful. It's going to be a wonderful place in the future day. In, this, in the future day that Isaiah is talking about. God takes pleasure in his people. And he enjoys giving them his best. The old name desolate here will be replaced by Beulah, which means married. When a bride marries, she receives a new name. In Israel's case, she's already married to Jehovah God. But she'll get a new name when she's reconciled to him. In other words, the king is, pre- is present to protect it, and his presence means joy. Verse 5. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. God will take such pleasure in Israel like a bridegroom takes pleasure in his bride. The people of the rural areas are sometimes said to be married to the land. Even today. In this this sense, the country of Jerusalem may be said to be married to its sons who cherish and protect the land. But in another sense, God's true bride is made up of the people of Jerusalem. The church is his bride. So we read, so shall your God rejoice over you. So the message of this double use of the figure of marriage suggests that the Holy Land won't be an unchosen virgin, nor a rejected wife, nor a widow, but a wife living in marital happiness, whether it's speaking of the land or the people. So Jerusalem, it says, shall be called Hephzibah. My delight is in her, God says. Verse 6. I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent. Again, the word I here refers to the Lord as it does in verse 1 and also in verse 8. The word watchman here refers to the prophets. Isaiah 56, 10. Isaiah says, you who make mention of the Lord... This is Isaiah's way of referring to watchmen. You who make mention of the Lord. It speaks of the watchmen and it shows that the prophets were intercessors. The phrases here, do not keep silent and give him no rest, relates to the prophet's prayer. 
to the Lord's promises mentioned in verse 1. That is, we need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And we're told to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And we're to long for that day when there will be peace. And it says here that, that in verse 6 that the watchmen are not to keep quiet. God gave his people leaders to guide them. But Isaiah says in chapter 56, verse 10, they weren't faithful. And now he gives them faithful watchmen here who constantly remind God of his promises. And we are watchmen today. We're like the guards that, used, that, that, that sat on the city wall, that stood and marched on the city walls, keeping our eyes open for God, is uh, what he's doing in the world today. We are to, to tell the world, we're to tell people. We encourage each other about these significant events that are taking place. Verse 7. And give him, notice, Isaiah says, And give him no rest till he establishes, until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. We also speak to God in a way that I, I don't think we'd ever expect. Isaiah says here, Our prayers are to give God no rest until a revived church astonishes the world. That's why we're to be united in prayer for revival. God's word makes it very clear here that he often tests our patience and our faith. And when they call out to him, you know, for for some mercy that, that they need or some grace and help, in some important time of need, it's made very clear. But you know, and, and you, I'm sure you know and you've experienced, sometimes when we pray for that mercy, that grace, that help in time of need, sometimes God holds it back. God holds back that mercy, that grace or that help that that person is praying for. He holds it back for a little while. It might be longer than a little while. And not only will he hold it back, but at first, he might allow the situation to even get a little worse. And sometimes I, I've shared that with people at different... You know, it may, be, it may get worse before it gets better. But God will never fail us. Without fail, God will finally help those who continue to pray perseveringly without delay. And with all perseverance... And without stopping, God will answer. And you know, that's what we're called to do in the scripture. We're called to persevere in prayer. We're, we're, we're called to not stop. We're to pray with, without ceasing until God answers. We need to be patient and persevering. The scripture says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient, James 5, verses 7 through 8. When we pray, we are to be patient. We are to wait upon the Lord. James says, just like the farmer, he goes out, he, 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 he plows the land, he plants the seed, and then he waits. He waits for the rain. And then the, plants, the, the, the crop begins to grow Again, it doesn't happen overnight. And sometimes our prayers are not, as we well know, answered overnight. We're exhorted to be patient and to wait, but God never fails. Otto Halsby, 
was a Norwegian theologian who, rest, who resisted the Nazis during World War II, and he suffered for it in a concentration camp. He understood what it means to pray all the way through until God answers. He said that prayer is like mining. It's like boring holes deep into rock-hard human hearts. It's hard work. It tests our patience, and many times we can't see the results. But in God's time, he does whatever is necessary to remove the rocks to open up the way. God's word never fails us. Our problem is we try to figure God out, and we, 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 we wonder why God doesn't do it our way. And, and that's the problem. And again, we know that God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. You know, it's like when the Lord rolled away the stone covering the entrance to Jesus' tomb. It wasn't so Jesus could get out. It was so that others come and see that he had risen. But again, God rolled away that stone for the people to see. And it's when God opened the rock that the people might drink from it. Here God has called us to bombard him, to bombard his throne with never-ceasing prayer. We're called to not let him rest until he brings about the church's revival worthy of the earth's praise. God God answers prayer by persistent prayer. He's overcome by persistent prayer. Remember in Genesis 32, 28, Jacob wrestled with God. And God said to Jacob, you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Jesus compared prayer to a man constantly pounding on the door of his neighbor's house late at night. And Jesus said because of his persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weakness and in the insults and hardships and persecutions and troubles that I suffer for for Christ. You know, we don't take pleasure much of the time in our weaknesses or or in our hardships and in our troubles. But Paul says now, because he saw how God answered prayer and God met his need, he says, hey man, I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses. I take pleasure in my weaknesses. I take pleasure in my hardships. You know why? Because it, it, it shows us again the power of God and the faithfulness of God when he answers. And I remember an old song, and it's going to probably be way beyond, way, way before your time, but there was a singer back in the 60s, 70s, I know a couple of us here, Andre Crouch. And I'll never forget the words he said, if I didn't have any problems, I wouldn't know that God could solve them. It's so wonderful to know the promises of God, the faithfulness of God, that he will answer those needs. And Paul knew that. He said, that's why I'm glad in, in my weaknesses and my hardships and my troubles that I suffer for Christ because he is sufficient. He meets my needs. He supplies all of my needs from his riches and glory. Verse 8 The Lord has sworn by his hand and by the arm of his strength 
Surely I will no longer give your grain as food for your enemies, and the sons of the foreigner shall not drink your new wine for which you have labored. God promises here in verse 8, he says, I will no longer give your grain as food for your enemies. And he said, the sons of the foreigners, they shall not come, they, they, they shall not drink in my holy courts. What a privilege. According to Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48, there will be a millennial temple. And the Jews are going to worship the Lord there. Having received their Messiah, they, are now clearly, they will now clearly understand the spiritual meaning of their worship. Today, Paul says their minds are veiled. But then their eyes are going to be opened. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 14 and 8 through 18, he says, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away. But even to this day, when, the, when Moses is read, a veil is on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, that veil is taken away. Once I was blind, but now I see. And again, that's, you know, that expression that I used to hear before as a believer. Oh, he's seen the light. Now you think, what kind of weird stuff is that? Well, you know, when I got saved, I saw the light. Because I was living in darkness. Total darkness. And, And you can't understand spiritual things with a natural mind. The Jews' minds are, 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 minds are, are veiled, they're covered. But one day, when the Messiah comes, their eyes are going to be opened. Here's what God promised. The Lord has sworn by his right hand, verse 8. The Lord has sworn by his right hand. The, the right hand is a symbol of his power. And he says, and by the arm of his strength, which is the symbol of his own greatness. Now, this is a... This promise is a reminder of the attacks of the Midianites leaving the land barren in Judges chapter 6, verse 4 and 11. For the harvest, you know, the harvest were taken by foreigners. And then the farmers were left, were, were left without the food that they worked so hard for. God says, that's not going to happen anymore in the New Jerusalem. It's also a reminder of the curse pronounced on spiritual apostasy. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 33 and 51. And now here comes the the declaration that hostile invaders will not take the crops that Judah has grown anymore, nor will they drink the wine from the grapes that she has worked so hard to gather. Freedom from economic problems is more closely connected to freedom from depravity than this world understands or wants to recognize. In other words, a lot of nations' problems, and let's look at our own, the problems that we have, the problems that we face is because of the depravity of the nation. People don't want to recognize that. We'd rather play dumb and say, oh, well, we're just going through this thing and we'll come out of it. They don't want to recognize or admit or even think about that it's God's judgment. Several times in Scripture, we see economic problems, we see floods, we see earthquakes, we see droughts, 
And today, I don't know if you've been listening, today we're talking about you know, a terrible drought. Terrible drought. We're, the Bible talks about plagues, pestilence, which encompasses pandemics. They're judgments of God. But nobody wants to believe that. Nobody wants to see that. Listen to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, 12 through 14. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Listen to what he says next. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, drought, or I command the locusts, plagues, to devour the land, or I send pestilence, pandemics, among my people. Notice, God said, when I do that, See, God brings those things. They were judgments on the land. He said, but if my people, notice, my people, he's not talking about, he's talking about the world, he's talking about his people. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. But notice, he connects wicked ways with the things that he called the droughts, the plagues, the pestilence, all caused by the wickedness of the people, the wickedness in the land. But he says, if we'll pray and we'll turn from those wicked ways, he'll heal our land. And we need to remember Proverbs 14, 34, that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. This verse should be written over the doorway leading into and out of the White House. It should be written outside the, in, the entrance and the, and the exit of every courthouse, of every schoolhouse, of every family's house. It should be written inside the United Nations. But that will never happen until Jesus Christ reigns on this earth. When Jesus returns, then... And only then they'll learn that righteousness does exalt a nation. Today, the nations don't believe that righteousness exalts them. But history shows it to be true. You know, the, the, the pathway of history, the, you, you look at the history of, of many nations, it, it's, the, those pathways are sc- scattered with destruction. The wreckage and the ruins of nations that once were are no more. They didn't follow this principle that righteousness exalts a nation and that sin is a reproach to any people, including the United States of America. Verse 9. But those who have gathered it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who have brought it together shall drink in my holy courts. So the promise in verse 9 here is looking to the future rebuilding of the holy temple. Eating the fruits of the harvest will be dedicated by religious feasts. The enjoyment of the blessing will be done by acknowledging the one who gave them the blessings. They will thank God for that. Verse 10. He says, go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, take out the stones, lift up a banner for the peoples. Here Isaiah sees a walled city. That was that was early that earlier was barren and was lifeless and forsaken, but now 
It's repopulated with redeemed people. The city gates are open. A a newly reconstructed highway leads from from the ends of the earth into the city and the nations are invited to come and enjoy the victory of God with his people. This is another reference to the highway. He mentions in Isaiah eleven sixteen and Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. And there's an urgency here in these words by Isaiah. Because the Lord is about to come. And the people have to get, get, get this road ready. And when the work is done, they will have to lift a banner to let the people know they're ready. This is a call to prepare the way for the returning exiles. To give the signal and the word, the proclamation of salvation for Jew and Gentile. With the reminder of the coming rewards and judgments, followed by the symbolic names, the new names that God gave them, that set the standard for God's people. Isaiah said, go through the gates. Now this could be a a, a dual command, meaning to depart from the lands of captivity. That's definitely commanded. Also, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, those living in Jerusalem, are to form a welcoming party and a crew of road builders who will make the return uh, or exiles uh, to Jerusalem as welcome and as easy as possible. Isaiah's dual command here shows a sense of urgency in the heart of the one that's speaking. He says, prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Take out the stones or those things that would prevent them from coming. In other words, spiritual roads have to be prepared so that they lead every guilty sinner from their environment right to the heart of God. If men are to travel on a higher level, level of living... A way has to be made. A highway has to be set up. A way has to be made for them to get there. All hindrances have to be removed by a loving concern that removes all the obstacles that would keep them from getting there. If Christ's ambassadors, who we are, that is you and I. If if we are going to make the way clear and straight for sinners... We can't, re, we can't confuse what God says with the stumbling blocks or the stumbling stones of man's ways or man's personal opinions. In other words, our message has to be simple, it has to be real, and it has to be clear. And if the church is to be successful today, some of us, has to, have, have, some of us have to clear away the obstacles that are along the way that God has planned. And then Isaiah says others have to bring building materials and build a highway where numbers of new believers can march. Or others have to remove stones that might cause them to stumble. While others must lift up a standard, a banner to direct the people in in their going. Isaiah said in verse 10, lift up a banner for the people to see. In other words, the standard. Let them see the standard. The banner or the standard then becomes a flag that symbolizes Jerusalem's standards that they're to follow in order for the people to gather together and to follow so that they are able to march in victory and faithfulness. Verse 11. Indeed, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the world, say to the 
daughter of Zion, surely your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. <clears throat> Isaiah says that the Lord, the, the Lord is announcing to all the earth, tell the people of Jerusalem that the Lord is coming to save you, bringing with him the people that he has saved, that he's rescued. This announcement in verse 11 is relevant for the present hour right now, as this verse shows us. The salvation of Israel is part of God's overall plan of salvation. And we should, if we ever have the opportunity, we should present the gospel to every Israelite, to every Jew. The Messiah is their Savior today. And the second coming of Christ means to set up his kingdom on earth for these people. And this is a proclamation that goes to the ends of the earth. And when he comes, he shares more new names. As we close in verse 12, we'll see what they are. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. So Israel is called the holy people and the redeemed of the Lord. And Jerusalem is called sought out, a city not forsaken. And God will not rest until he's accomplished his purposes for his people. And the world won't have any peace until he does, until he succeeds. Remember in verse 7, Isaiah says, hey, give him no rest. God asks to give him no rest, but to pray for Israel and Jerusalem. Because praying for his people is an important part of God's plan. Israel cannot be called a holy people today because they're not redeemed today. They don't believe Jesus is their Messiah. So Jerusalem is a forsaken city right now, but the day will come when things are going to be so different. The salvation of God will work a transformation in the nation of Israel. And also in the physical earth, because there will be a new Jerusalem and a new earth. The people will be called a holy people. And, and the land is then going to be greatly desired. This is not what's happening today. It's not the case today. But all that Isaiah has said here in chapter 62 speaks of a glorious future. And one that we have to look forward to. Father, we thank you for your wonderful word Father, we thank you for that coming day. And Father, may, we, may our hearts enter into this wonderful time, this wonderful promise, God. May we, may we look forward to that day, God, when we'll be with you. May that desire be the right motive, God, because of who you are, because of what you've done for me. And so, Lord, may we look up and know that it's not far away. That Jesus, we're just waiting for that call. We're waiting for that trumpet sound, Lord, when it starts everything off, Lord. And Father, we pray again that, um, Lord, if we're not walking right, we're not doing right, God, that we'd make it right. That we'd be right, God. That we turn from our wicked ways, that we confess our sins, humble ourselves, that you might forgive us and restore us, God.
So, Father, we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Sunday morning, we'll be back in first.